Aloha, this is Pastor Perry, and I want to thank you for joining us online to study the Word of God together. We pray that you will be blessed as the Holy Spirit ministers to you through this message and through God's Word. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us online, in the class, and on the podcast, and however else you might be joining us. This is lecture number 12 in the Systematic Theology series, and we're going to start with prayer. So let's pray together. Lord, here we are again, eagerly awaiting to be taught by the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have sent him to teach us and to lead us into all truth and to help us know how to have a better relationship with you and to lead us into truth and to glorify Christ. And we pray that all those things would happen tonight and even more. We ask the Holy Spirit would speak through me words that are true, especially as we talk about him. May he help us understand him better. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, a quick review on pneumatology. We started off talking about that the Holy Spirit is a person, and that is the, one of the most important things that we can remember. He's a person, not an it, not an influence, not a power. Uh, we don't manipulate him. We don't throw him. We don't blow him on people or anything like that. He has his own mind, will, and emotion. And, of course, he is God. He is a third member of the, the Trinity. And we saw many proofs to that, his works, his deity, the things that he does. And then we also saw how he worked in the Old Testament period, but in the New Testament period, he works differently than the Old Testament period. In the New Testament, we find there are a number of works of the Holy Spirit that take place. And we started off by talking about the Spirit indwelling, and that is God living in us. And that's unique to the New Testament period. And when the church is raptured out, that residence of the Holy Spirit in the church, the church, the temple, for the temple, the church, we leave. And so the Holy Spirit's residence has left. So uh, the Holy Spirit will still be around because he's omnipresent, but his residence in the church is gone, and that allows for the coming of the Antichrist and for him uh, setting up his throne in the Jewish temple. And then we saw another work of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit sealing, S-E-A-L-I-N-G, and that's that the Holy Spirit guarantees your salvation. So he is the seal, and he performs the seal. So sort of like wrapping himself around you to seal you to the day of redemption until you are completely redeemed, glorified with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, demonstrates very clearly that you can't lose your salvation because you are safe and sealed in the Holy Spirit, and you're not strong enough to break that seal. We also then looked at what we call spirit baptizing. And early on, there was confusion, especially in the Pentecostal charismatic movement, of confusing spirit baptizing and spirit filling. Uh, fortunately, through the teaching of uh, Pentecostal theologians like Gordon Fee and others, they've said, no, we've gotten those mixed up. They're, they are two separate things. And it's important to understand that baptizing and filling are two different things. And the spirit baptizing is us in God, that the Holy Spirit places us into the body of Christ. And so we are in Christ, we are in his body. So if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you're actually not in Christ, you're not saved. So this isn't a second work that happens later on after you're saved. It happens when you're saved. If you don't have the baptism in with by the Holy Spirit, you are not saved, you haven't been placed in the body 
of Christ. And we talked about that. And then we talked about, lastly, the spirit filling. And some people define that as being spirit controlled. I prefer to use a word that is a little clearer because it doesn't control every action you do. You still have free will. You still have your flesh and things like that. So it's better to say that spirit filling is God directing, influencing, and empowering us. And the spirit filling is something we're commanded to have. We're never commanded to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, but we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we saw in many texts in the New Testament that people were repeatedly filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's something that can be lost, needs to be done again. And we use the acronym D-A-Y, desire, ask, yield, to remind us how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to be desiring for the Holy Spirit to lead us. We ask him, confess any known sin, and then we yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And then we saw different things that the Holy Spirit will do for us. He prays for us, he leads us, he teaches us, he empowers us. He fills us with the love of Christ. He conforms us to the image of Christ. And, of course, he provides assurance of our salvation. And we'll be talking about the difference between assurance of salvation and eternal security. They're not the same thing. But we'll get to those when we get to soteriology. And now we come to page 64, the spirit gifting. The spirit gifting. And this is God giving you a spiritual ability. God giving you a, a special, excuse me, a special ability. It's a special spiritual ability, but it's a special ability. That's spirit gifting. God giving you a special spiritual ability. And what is it? Well, the word for spiritual gifts in the Greek is the Greek word charisma. And charisma, we translate into the English, or we transliterate it, actually. We don't translate it, but we transliterate it, um, if you look in your notes, to, we pronounce it charisma, and that's derived from the word charis, the Greek word for grace. So a spiritual gift is a God-given ability for service. A spiritual gift is a God-given ability for service. And it says there in your notes, see chart for a listing of spiritual gifts mentioned in Scripture. So I think we'll go ahead and look at that list. It's on pages 69 to 72 in your notes. So you have quite a few extra notes at the back here this time. But let's look at the list of, of spiritual gifts, keeping in mind that spiritual gifts are something that God gives you and is a special ability for service. And on page 69, if you look at that chart first, page 69, your chart should look like this with uh, four parallel columns. And what this chart has, it shows you some of the list of gifts given in Scripture. And we have gifts given in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, gifts of healing, miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirit, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. And then later on in 1 Corinthians, you'll see a repeat of some of the gifts. And so that's why these lists show you repeated gifts, but also it adds apostles, teachers, helps, and administration. And then when we come to Romans chapter 12, we see a list of gifts, and some of the gifts are the same as in 1 Corinthians, but we also notice they add giving, leadership, and showing mercy. And then we come to Ephesians chapter 4, and it doesn't list all the gifts that we've seen before. It mentions some of them, and then it adds evangelists and pastors. 
So a quick look at this chart shows you that we don't have any complete listing of spiritual gifts in Scripture. The Lord doesn't say, okay, here's a complete list and you can have these gifts. Because there are other gifts that you could have that, that aren't mentioned here that Paul mentions later. Like he mentions the gift of celibacy that he has. And some people see martyrdom as a spiritual gift, the gift you only use once, of course, martyrdom. <laughs> um, and then if you look at the next page, page 70, uh, this is a chart. I didn't make the chart. I borrowed it from someone else, and I, I'm afraid I've lost track of who that was. But this is a lift, list of, of gifts uh, with the Greek word, if you want it there, with scripture background in the left column, and then a description of what those gifts are, uh, the result of having the gift, and an example of someone who had it. Now, you need to remember that in the scripture, we are not given definitions of spiritual gifts. We, are, we see them used, we see examples of them, and so we're doing our best to come up with a definition of a spiritual gift, but when you see this list, you might see someone define that gift differently than the way it's listed here. So these are just guides, they're, they're helpful guides, but again, the scripture doesn't give us a specific definition of spiritual gifts. With the exception, it does give us an idea of the gift of prophecy, um, what that means, but not in entirety, and we'll look at that a little bit later. So you have the gifts here, prophecy, service, helping, teaching, encouraging, giving, leadership, showing mercy. Then on page 71, you have apostleship, evangelism, pastor, teacher, the message of wisdom, the message of knowledge, and faith. On page 72, you have healing, miracles, discernment, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. So these are all some of the gifts that are mentioned in Scripture. Like I said, it's not exhaustive. It's not an exhaustive list but it helps us understand what they might be. Uh, remember, the Holy Spirit is infinite, means he has no limits, and so there are things he could give us or do for us that, that other people haven't experienced or we don't see listed here, but it doesn't mean it's not a gifting from the Holy Spirit. So again, go back to page 64, page 64, and we see that spirit gifting is just God giving you a special spiritual ability. And a spiritual gift is a God-given ability for service. We looked at the chart. So who has these gifts? Who has these? Well, if you look at your notes, all believers have at least one spiritual gift. All believers have at least one spiritual gift. But no believer has all the gifts. But no believer has all the gifts. So fill in those blanks, and then we'll go ahead and, and look at those scriptures. So all believers have at least one spiritual gift. No believer has all the gifts. Let's look first at 1 Corinthians 7, 7, that shows us that all believers have at least one spiritual gift. In 1 Corinthians 7, 7, the Apostle Paul is giving some advice on marriage, and at the time he gives this advice, he is unmarried. It could be that he was married at one time. Many people think he had been married at one time uh, because he was a, a member of the uh, Jewish Council, the Sanhedrin, and he would have been married. If he's on the, the Jewish Council Supreme Court, he'd have to be married because it was believed that only a married man could make wise decisions and have the experiences of life and a family and things to make good decisions. So if you're a member of the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, you were married. And we believe Paul was part of that court. Now, we can't prove he was, but he talks about casting his vote um, against, I think it was Stephen. And so that would indicate that he was on this court. And if he was, we know he was married at one time. 
which means his wife either died or she left him, um, or some other, I don't know, other options, I guess. So at this point, he's not married, and he says in verse 7, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. And he means at this point, celibate. However, each man has his own gift from God. Each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So he's talking about God gives gifts different people different things, and Paul's gifting in this area. He had more than one gift, but he seems to have had the gift of celibacy, being able to stay unmarried and minister for the Lord. And then we also look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 which also indicates that people have at least one spiritual gift if they are a believer. 1 Peter 4.10. Peter's writing to the church uh, dispersed abroad, and he says in 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, implore it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And then he lifts some of the gifts. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterance of God. Whoever serves, let him do as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he indicates here that each person is gifted with at least one gift, and the purpose of that gift, of course, is to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the main purposes of your gift. But also, no believer has all the gifts. And there's a very important passage in 1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 28 to 30, the Apostle Paul makes quite clear that not everybody has the same spiritual gifts. So that sometimes we have people think that other people aren't as good as they are as a Christian or as spiritual or as blessed because they don't have the same gift. Uh, for a while, that was um, the gift of tongues was selected as a gift that if you didn't have the gift of tongues, well, there's something wrong with you. And most churches have moved away from that, that held that. I mean, it was a small segment of the, the Christianity that held that, but they held that, you know, there was something wrong with you if you didn't speak in tongues. But Paul indicates that we have different gifts. We don't all have the same gifts. And so we have to be careful of both gift envy and gift projection. Gift projection is when I project my gift on you. And they go, well, you should be able to preach a sermon because I can't. Or you should be able to teach Sunday school because I can't. Well, maybe the person has another gift. Or you could say, well, you ought to be able to give half your salary to the Lord because I give half my salary to the Lord. Well, maybe you have the gift of giving and they don't. So you have to be very careful that we don't project our gift onto someone who doesn't have it. But also there's gift envy. And then we envy someone's gift because God chose to give us a different gift. And we're thinking, oh, man, I'm not as good as them. I'm jealous. They have this experience. I don't have that experience. God has given us a variety of gifts, we're told in 1 Corinthians 12. And the Apostle Paul makes it clear we don't all have the same gift. Let's pick it up in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Verse 28, and God is appointed in the church. And then he gives a list. First, apostles. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. Then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. And then he says, all are not apostles, are they? Now, in the English, you would answer the way it's written. You would say no. And in the Greek, it's very clear that he's expecting you to answer it no. All are not apostles, are they? 
No. All are not prophets, are they? No. All are not teachers, are they? No. All are not workers of miracles, are they? No. All do not have gifts of healing, do they? No. All do not speak with tongues, do they? No. All do not interpret, do they? No. And then he says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. And he says, I'll show you a still more excellent way. In between the two chapters, 12 and 14, that talk about spiritual gifts, we have chapter 13. And chapter 13 is about the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because the gifts are not as great as the filling. Because you can be gifted and use your gift for something other than the glory of the Lord if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. So in between talking about spiritual gifting, he says, make sure you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 13, that's called love. And we know love is a fruit of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he says in chapter 13, verse 1, after talking about gifts, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and do not have love, the filling of the Holy Spirit, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, he says, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, he has a gift of giving. And if I deliver my body to be burned, you have the gift of martyrdom, but do not have love, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit of love, it profits me nothing. So we need to make sure when we talk about the gifting that we always understand that we can be gifted and not filled with the Holy Spirit. But then the gifting is not being used in the way the Lord wants us to use it. We need to make sure we're filled with the Holy Spirit when we use this ability that we have. But the point of the passage, main point, was to show us that we don't all have the same spiritual gifts, and that's by design. And, of course, you might remember that Paul uses the human body as an example. Um, and, you know, we're not all an ear, we're not all an eye, you're not all a hand, not all a foot. We need all the different aspects of the body of Christ for the body to function properly. Which brings us to when. When do you get your spiritual gift? It would seem that you get it at conversion. At conversion. Um, possibly some gifts are given at other times in a believer's life in order to accomplish specific purposes. But you should expect that you would get it at conversion. And again, that's conjecture. It doesn't actually say you get your spiritual gift at conversion. But it makes sense. If every Christian has a gift, well, then you have to get it at conversion. Otherwise, they'd be Christians who don't have gifts. Does that make sense? So if there are all Christians have gifts, they must get them when they become Christians, even though the Bible doesn't specifically say that's when you get them. And 1 Timothy 4.14, though, is an interesting verse because it leads us to believe that you can have gifts given to you later in your walk with Lord according to the need of the moment or the time period. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, the Apostle Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy. And he's a young man, and Timothy perhaps has been a little bit timid. <laughs> he's called Timid Timothy uh, in, the, in the passages here. And in verse 14, Paul tells him, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. And when did you get it? Which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with a laying on of hands by the presbytery. And the presbytery are the elders of the church. So he got a spiritual gift at some point when the elders of the church laid hands on him. Now, this could have been when he got saved. It doesn't say when it was. 
So we don't know, but it sounds like he might have gotten it later on that he was given the gift of maybe pastor teacher or something like that when he entered the ministry. We don't know, but we don't want to put the Holy Spirit in a box. He's a spirit. You can't put him in a box anyways, and he's God. So we need to be open that the Holy Spirit might choose to give you other giftings at other times of your life. So how are gifts distributed by the Holy Spirit? Um, So how? Gifts are distributed by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit desires. That's important. Now, we're told that we can ask for certain gifts, but they are distributed as the Holy Spirit desires. Again, going back to 1 Corinthians 12, which teaches us a lot about spiritual gifts. Verse 11. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So he gives the gifts as he wills. Verse 18, but now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. So the body is a metaphor of the church of Christ. We have different members, hands, feet, things like that, which is a metaphor for spiritual gifts. And he's saying those are distributed according to God's desire, what God knows is best. He distributes the gifts. Um, This doesn't prohibit you from asking for gifts or seeking gifts. We we saw in 1 Corinthians Verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 31, he says, earnestly desire the greater gifts. So he says you should, you should have a desire for the greater gifts, and the greater gifts could be the ones listed in verse 28, apostleship, prophets, and teachers, because he ranked those, one, two, three. And it could be, he says, in the church, we need multiple gifts, but let's make sure that in the church, and he's speaking the church as a whole, make sure the church desires the greater gifts, not just spectacular gifts, not just gifts that are outwardly showy, but gifts that really help the church mature and grow, and they are listed here, apostles, prophets, teachers. Um, And so that could be why he gives us a listing and numbers them. Don't know for sure, but that's a conjecture, and I think a reasonable one. So what is the purpose of these spiritual gifts? The purpose is for the edification of the church and the glory of God. Twofold. It's for the edification of the church and the glory of God. Now, let me stop there. It's not in your notes, but when you use your spiritual gift, you're going to feel good about yourself. It's going to encourage you. It edifies you to use your spiritual gift. But the purpose of your gift is not you. So that after I preach a sermon, if it goes well, um, I feel good about it. But I don't just preach sermons to myself at home. It's not about me preaching to myself. Um, The gift of service. You feel good if you have the gift of serving and you serve someone. But your gift of service isn't just about you doing stuff for yourself. Like, look at all the neat stuff I did in my house and for myself. You know, that's not what it's for. So you should feel good when you use your gift, but it's not about you. It's about others and it's about God. So the purpose is for the edification of the church and the glory of God. And we see this in several passages. Since we're in 1 Corinthians, we'll start there. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. And you're probably well familiar with this passage. It says, whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whatever you're doing, especially using your spiritual gifts, you are doing it to bring him glory. 
And then 1 Corinthians 14.12. 14.12. So also, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. So again, you're all excited about spiritual gifts, this, this church in Corinth. They're excited about spiritual gifts, and he, he doesn't have a problem with that. But he says, make sure that you are zealous for spiritual gifts for the edification of the church. It's not for your personal edification. It's for the edification of the whole church. That's why you're giving a gift, to serve them, to edify them. And we have a similar passage, Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. Ephesians 4. Apostle Paul again writing, again talking about spiritual gifts, and it says in Ephesians 4.11, and he gave some as apostles, these are spiritual gifts, and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. So he said, we gave you these leaders to train the people in the church so they could build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to a true man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We haven't reached that fullness of Christ yet, so we're still using our gifts, we're still training people, we're still helping people grow in Christ using our spiritual gifts. So that's the purpose. It's the edification of the church and to glorify God. Now, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the sign gifts. And if you didn't get an updated page 64, your page may end at this point. So make sure you have an updated page 64 in the back so that you have this on sign gifts. There is a strong difference of opinion among theologians and church denominations as to whether the more miraculous spiritual gifts like tongues, prophecy, healings, and miracles... Tongues, prophecy, healings, and miracles. I'll give you a moment to write all those. Tongues, prophecy, healings, and miracles. So they have the context. I'll read it again. There is a strong difference of opinion among theologians and church denominations as to whether the more miraculous spiritual gifts like tongues, prophecy, healings, or miracles, sometimes referred to as sign gifts, are still available today or if they were limited to just the early church and died out with the death of the first apostles and or the completion of the scriptures. So some people believe that these sign gifts died out with the death of the first apostles and or, some people think both or or, the completion of the scriptures. So the idea is that once the scriptures were completed, we no longer needed certain revelatory gifts because we have the scriptures. Now, miracles is not a revelatory gift. Healings is not a revelatory gift. But speaking in tongues, prophecy, interpretation of tongues are revelatory gifts. And when the revelation was completed, the Bible, some churches believe we no longer needed the sign gifts. And the main passage they use, uh, if you want to jot this down, because it's not in your notes, but it's 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And this is the main passage used by those who think that gifts like this manner of revelatory gifts, these sign gifts have ceased. They look at 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 8. It says, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. 
If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. So three gifts are mentioned. They're revelatory gifts. Um, they reveal truth. That's what we mean by a revelatory gift, giving God's revelation, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. And he goes on to say, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. In other words, we don't know everything. We can't prophesy everything. We only have partial understanding. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So the key is, what is this word perfect? Because it says, when the perfect comes, we don't need these partial gifts. So one argument is, this word perfect refers to the completion of the biblical canon. When the Bible was finished, you no longer needed these revelatory gifts because now you have the complete revelation. Before, we only had partial revelation. person speaking in tongues or a person prophesying um, was only giving you a little bit of the revelation, but now we have the complete revelation. But the passage doesn't actually say that the word perfect means the Bible. And the word perfect is never used of the Bible anywhere in the New Testament, anyplace else. So you can't know. Is that what he meant? Well, Paul goes on. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, and reason as a child. So again, speaking might refer to tongues, thinking to the gift of um, knowledge, and reason as a child, maybe the gift of prophecy. He says, when I became a man, I did away with childish things. So he's saying, when I became a mature person, physically, I did away with certain things as a child. So when I became mature as a Christian, I did away with things. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. We'll come back to when then is. Now I know in part the gift of knowledge, but then I shall know fully, just as I have been fully known. Well, when is it that we will be face-to-face? -face? Well, the argument here is that's the return of Jesus Christ. That when we see Jesus Christ, we will see things clearly. When you're with Jesus Christ, you don't need the gift of revelation, of revelatory gifts like the gift of prophecy and knowledge and tongues. You'll have Christ. And Christ is the perfect that he's talking about, uh, perhaps, when he says, verse 10, when the perfect comes. Well, that's Christ. When Christ comes and we see him face to face, then we don't need all these other gifts. Well, maybe we don't need any gifts when he comes. So that's the argument. So which is it? Do the gifts still exist? Is it, do they end when the Bible was written? Do they end when Christ returns? Well, before I answer that, look at your notes. Those who believe all the spiritual gifts are still operating today are called, and here's a great word, continuationists. So it's just the word continuation and add some ist to it. Those who believe all the spiritual gifts are still operating today are called continuationists. Those who believe that spiritual gifts like tongues, prophecy, healing, and miracles are no longer distributed to the church are called cessationists. Cessationists because they ceased, cessationists. And both of them sound like really bad words. If someone calls you a cessationist or a continuationist, oh, that's not me, you don't even know what it means. Okay, they're not bad words, they're just big words. Okay, so continuationists believe all the gifts are operating today. Cessationists believe that certain sign gifts no longer are 
around today. And the cessationists then would go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, verse 8, and say that perfect is maybe the scriptures, and when the scriptures came, we don't need these gifts, something like that. So who holds these, belie these beliefs? Well, look at your notes. Those who believe that spiritual gifts like tongues, prophecy, healing, oh, we did that, okay, and are, are cessationists. Next thing, charismatic and Pentecostal churches are, which are they? Well, you're looking at the screen, you're cheating. <laughs> continuationists. <laughs> They're continuationists. Charismatics and Pentecostal churches are continuationists. They believe all the gifts still exist today and continue, and that they are experiencing them in their church. In general, then, the next one, reformed and dispensational churches tend to be cessationists. Tend to be. They're not all cessationists. But in general, reformed and dispensational churches tend to be cessationists. They believe that certain spiritual gifts, the sign gifts, the more miraculous revelatory gifts, have ceased to exist. However, notice this exception. The Calvary Chapel denomination is an example of a dispensational church that is also continuationist. And Pentecostal Reformed theologian Gordon Fee is an example of a Reformed continuationist. And you're probably going to have no idea what that means. Um, but we will be talking about dispensations a little bit more. We've talked about them a little bit. Um, and they're in contradistinction to Reformed theology. It's a way of looking at how God's plan through history has played out. And most Reformed people, like I said, would see the gifts of, as terminating certain gifts. But now within the reform movement, there's a Pentecostal movement or charismatic movement in the reform movement. Some of them hold to the gifts still existing, like Gordon Fee, who's a great theologian. And, of course, Calvary Chapel, who exercises the spiritual gifts, but also they're dispensationalists, which means they hold to the literal interpretation of Scripture when it comes to end-time prophecies. So that's why when you turn on Calvary Chapel, they're always going through the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel. They're telling you about the end times and all those because they take those things literally as written in the scriptures just like I would. Um, but they are also uh, charismatic and many dispensationalists like Charles Ryrie, Dwight Pentecost, John Walverd, um, and the Norm Geisler would not be charismatic. So what's the conclusion? What should you believe? Well, I was trained at Dallas Theological Seminary by Rari and Pentecost and Walvoord and all those people um, that certain gifts don't exist. Uh, we spent hours going through 1 Corinthians 13 to try to prove that perfect meant the Bible, blah, blah, blah. And when I graduated from Dallas, I had to sign a doctrinal statement, and I crossed out the doctrinal statement, the part that says, I believe certain gifts have ceased. I crossed it out. I go, well, you taught me how to interpret scriptures and how to handle them correctly. And the way you taught me to handle scriptures, I can't just twist this because I don't like what it says. So I crossed it out. And so I never got my degree from doubt. No, I'm making that up. <laughs> I got my degree. They still graduated me, okay? Um, but I crossed it out. So what's the conclusion? Whatever spiritual gift the Holy Spirit chooses to give you, use it. Use it. I'd be really foolish to tell you you don't have a gift <laughs> that you're using, <laughs> you know, that you have. You know, if God gave you a gift, use it. Um, and I'm going to give you some side notes here because we have a little extra time still um, in a minute. But I just want to let you know, it's, it's, we shouldn't get so hung up on whether we have a gift or don't have a gift. If people have a gift, don't have a gift. We, we should look and see if those gifts are being used for the purpose for which God gives gifts. 
if they're drawing attention to the person, that's not the purpose of the gift. If people are using their spiritual gifts to elevate themselves, draw attention to themselves, to make themselves look more spiritual, that's not the purpose of the gift. The purpose of gifts, do you remember? Or what? Twofold. Glorify God and edify the church. So you need to make sure you're using the gifts that way. So I want to mention something. I jotted a few notes down on the back of one of these pages. You can jot it on the back of one of your pages there. Um, I want to remind you something about the Holy Spirit in John 16, 14. You might jot that reference down. And this is all, these are all extra credit points here. They're not in your notes. Yeah, it'll be on the test. <laughs> no, it won't be on the test. Good question. John 16, 14. And John 16 is a, an amazing passage about Jesus telling us about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I want to get to verse 14, but there's so much good stuff before we get there. So let's start in verse 7. John 16, 7. Jesus is speaking, and he says, but I tell you the truth. Well, that's good. I'm really glad Jesus speaks the truth. He is the truth. He tells us the truth. We can trust him. It is to your advantage. Now, this is, what do you mean? Uh-oh. <laughs> you know something like, this is the truth. This is to your advantage that I go away. Now, there's a type of going, ooh, that doesn't sound like the truth to us. We don't want you to leave. But he goes, it's, it's to your advantage. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's referring to the Holy Spirit who's coming. And he says, He's not coming unless I leave. That's the plan. And we saw already the Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus and came at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So that's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict people of their sin, the fact that they need to become righteous through Jesus Christ, and that there's going to be a judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. That's wrong. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. That's the devil. And I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But, so notice, you need to learn some stuff, but you can't handle what I'm going to teach you now. So I'm going to send you another teacher, and he's going to teach you this stuff. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not guided into all the truth. You have to have the guiding ministry of the Holy Spirit to be led into the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. So we see here that the Holy Spirit is submissive to what the Son is telling him to speak and to share. And one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit coming, as we saw, is to disclose to you what is to come. In other words, to reveal the future. So one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to reveal to us the end times and the future. And this is the part I want to focus on, verse 14. He shall glorify me. For he shall take of mine and shall disclose it, disclose it to you. What does that mean? Well, Jesus tells us, verse 15. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So he says... All that the Father has, the Father's given to me. All that the Father's given to me, I give to the Holy Spirit to disclose to you. But notice, the Holy Spirit's coming to glorify Jesus. Isn't it interesting that in the church, often the person of the Trinity most talked about 
is the Holy Spirit. And yet, the role of the Holy Spirit is not to draw attention to himself. It's to draw attention to Jesus Christ. And so you need to be careful if a church becomes Holy Spirit-centric. Because then it's off-center. Because the Holy Spirit's role is to glorify Jesus Christ. He sort of operates behind the scenes and pushes Christ forward. And he shares what Christ wants him to share for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so there's a danger when we start glorifying the Holy Spirit apart from the Father and the Son because the ministry of the Holy Spirit, one of his main ministries here is to glorify Jesus and draw attention to Jesus, not to himself. Would you like me to talk, since we have a few minutes, about the gift of tongues or... A little bit. It's not in your notes, but let's, let me tell you. Um, it's not in your notes, but you can put it on the back here. Um, there, there are two views on the gift of tongues. And first of all, we have to take away the mystery of the word by first giving you the mystery of the word. <laughs> I always forget which O it is. There are two O's in Greek, so I just got to make sure I write the right one. Okay? So this is... Greek word glossa, okay? That's the word. And glossa means tongue, but it can mean your literal tongue. This thing right here. Can't see yours because you're wearing a mask, but uh, you can see mine. It means literally a tongue, your literal tongue. It also, though, can mean be used metaphorically, like we use tongue. What's your native tongue? That means language. In the King James Version in 1611, they chose to translate the Greek word glossa as tongue and tongues. If they translated languages, it, it would probably take away a lot of the mystery of this gift because that's all the word means. It just means language. So anytime you see the gift of tongues or tongues fell upon them or something like that, it's languages. They had languages. That's what their word means. So it has to be a language. That's, that's what the word means. Our word tongue means that. What's your native tongue, like I said? You know? um, so keep in mind that when you use the word tongue, we are talking about language. Okay? And again, that's linguistic. That's not opinion. That's fact. Okay, there are, are two views. I'm going to stay on the board there so I can make it easier for you. Um, there are, there are basically two views on the gift of tongues. Well, one is that there's only one type of, and I'm going to put tongues in quotes so you realize I mean languages. There's only one type of tongues used in the scripture, and they're all the same. Okay? The other view holds that there are two types of tongues used in Scripture. And in a minute, you, you'll, it'll become kind of obvious why we have this. The one type of tongues or languages is clearly described for us in Acts chapter 2, 
verses 4 to 11. And let's read that, and then we'll find out what they are. Acts chapter 2, verses 4 to 11. And this is this is at Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, chapter two, verse one. And then it says in verse four of chapter two, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages. Now we have tongues there, but realize that's just the word languages. So I'm just gonna say languages. They began to speak with other languages as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Okay, every nation. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. In his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? In other words, Galileans were like the country bumpkins. Like, these are uneducated people. How can they speak? And the word language is there is a different word. When it says they're speaking their own language, it really means dialect. So specific dialects they were speaking. Not just English, but a certain English dialect, let's say, or a certain Spanish dialect. In their case, it would be different languages. And they go, how is it that we each hear them in our own language or dialect to which we were born? Parthians, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own languages speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? So in Acts 2, Everyone agrees these are languages. These are known languages, and this is the gift of tongues. So one type of tongues, one view holds there's only one type, and they are known languages. And it's based on the first occurrence of the gift of tongues in Scripture when the Holy Spirit came. Clearly, it's known languages. Absolutely. Can't debate it. Right there. But... There's another segment of the church that believes, yes, there are two types. One is known languages. Because you obviously can't dispute Acts 2, 4 to 11. But they say there's another type of tongues in Scripture. And for that, they would turn to 1 Corinthians 14, 14 and 15. 1 Corinthians 14, 14 and 15. And they would call this a prayer language. Or that's usually the way it's called. It might be called something else, but prayer language. A prayer language. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, 14 and 15. Apostle Paul's writing, speaking about himself. In this chapter, he's talking a lot about spiritual gifts, the gift of prophecy, and the gift of tongues. And he says in verse 14, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So he's talking about praying in tongues. 
So people look at this and go, see, that's a prayer language. He's praying in tongues. What is the outcome then? Verse 15. I shall pray with the spirit, and I shall pray with the mind also. So he's saying, I have two types of prayers. I have prayers when I pray with my mind, and I know what I'm saying. I also have this spirit prayer when I don't know what I'm saying. Two types of prayers. I shall sing with the spirit, and I shall sing with the mind also. He goes, I even have two types of singing. I have time when I sing and I know the words. I have singing when I don't know the words, and I'm singing in the spirit. And he says, otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, as he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. So the people who hold two gift of tongues, you need to understand, when they say they pray in tongues, they're talking about this. They're not talking about praying in Greek or Hebrew or Arabic or Chaldean or some language they haven't studied before. And so in the church... Um, this first type, the people who believe in one type of tongues and the people who believe in two type but this type, known languages, this was used for evangelism mostly outside the church. And so that the apostles could go out and they could evangelize and they'd never studied the language and they could preach in the language they'd never studied and the person understood them. But Paul says, when you speak in tongues in the church, if you have this gift of known languages and you speak in the church and no one interprets it, and they don't understand whatever language you're speaking, it's not very helpful. So Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 14, he'll talk about this type, and he'll say, leave that for outside the church, unless in the church there's someone who has the gift of interpretation and can interpret this type of tongues. And so most of the talk in chapter 14 seems to be about known languages, but some people would say it also includes this prayer language. And this is often what you see people have a private prayer language. They'll tell you they have a private prayer, prayer language, something like that. They have this category. And you'll say, well, which one do I hold? Well, I'll just tell you, our denomination allows for both views. And decided that we wouldn't make this a point of contention. So if... Why make it a point of contention? There are more important things. It, it, we're not clear. Churches have different opinions on this. Um, and in our church, there are different opinions. I have a personal opinion and a personal experience. But my experience does not define the truth. And your experience does not define the truth. Our experiences can illustrate truth. They don't define truth. We find the truth in the scriptures. And if we have experience, we look to see in the scriptures if it's a scriptural experience. Okay? Um, so that's the, the gift of tongues, and churches have split over it in the past. It doesn't seem to be quite as big a splitting factor. There are other things to split over these days <laughs> in churches, I guess, you know. Um, but our denomination allows for both, and, and I think it was uh, A.B. Simpson put it this way, seek not, forbid not, is the way he said it. Don't seek a gift of tongues, and don't forbid the gift of tongues. You know, just if God gives you a gift, use it. If he doesn't give you a gift, then you shouldn't use it. But I remind you, going back to what I said in John 16, 14, the purpose of the coming of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ. Now, he does it in many different ways, but overall, he's to glorify Christ. And the purpose of our spiritual gifts that he gives us is to edify the church and bring glory to God. So if your spiritual gift is not bringing glory to God, it's being misused. And we have many examples of this. They're easier to see when it's a pastor who's fallen into immorality 
and he's been living a life of immorality for years, and yet he's been a phenomenal teacher and preacher. Uh, we just had a great fall of a great man um, within our own denomination recently. I won't mention his name. If you know him, you know him already. And it was discovered that he had a very secret life of immorality. But just because you sin, you don't lose your spiritual gift. It doesn't go away. If you have the gift of knowledge and the gift of teaching or gift of prophecy or gift of tongues, whatever you have, you don't lose your gift when you sin. Just like um, a natural gift. If you have the natural gift of piano playing, you don't lose it because you commit a crime. <laughs> you know, you still have that gift. But your spiritual gift is only used for the glory of Christ and the edification of the church when you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so that's why it's so important for us to pursue the filling of the Holy Spirit and not to be pursuing all the times gifting because when you're filled, the Holy Spirit will use your gifts for the glory of the Lord. Okay, those are some of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. Um, there are a couple things about the Holy Spirit that, or one thing about the Holy Spirit that we'll talk about when we get to the, uh, the uh, section called hamartiology, which is the section on sin. But there's what's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You've probably heard that. Uh, you've heard of the unpardonable sin. Uh, those are basically the same thing, or that are the same thing, unpardonable sin or blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And we will talk about that when we get to the teaching on sin. So if you want to know if you've ever committed the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, stay tuned, and I will let you know. But you have to come. Well, we're going to close there, and so I invite you to, to pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you allow for differences within your church of gifting, but also just differences of practice and even understanding of things. And Lord, help us to be gracious when we encounter people who believe differently than us, but help us also to stand firm on the truth that you have clearly revealed. Lord, we just thank you that you are truth, you reveal truth, and Lord, we want to live in the truth for the glory of Jesus Christ in whose character we pray. Amen.